I admit, I was a bit overwhelmed by the thought of looking at this one. Ironically, Numenara here, which I have no idea how to pronounce that, <laughs> um, is one of those games that I look at and I'm like, hmm, that seems like it would be better suited to a lore run, but it actually isn't. This game is so, so, so text-heavy. This game is actually awful for lore running. This would be basically the equivalent of me just sitting here reading a book. And that's not good streaming material. Never mind the fact that it's incredibly taxing on me. So, in the end, I'm going to do the best I can here. And I'm going to fail, but I'm going to do the best I can. So I hope you'll forgive me. One of the things I found funny about this is this is endemic of the ups and downs of the Kickstarter system. This game met its goal in six hours on Kickstarter. And actually set a record for, at the time, I don't know if it's been surpassed yet, for one of the fastest growing, uh, you know, pace of money coming in, right? And yet, despite this fact, there is this uh, general consensus amongst everyone who's played it, this goes amongst reviewers as well, that it's either really good or really bad, or perhaps more really disappointing is the correct wording there. In fact, if you check this on Steam, it says mixed. And I've heard the same thing from just about everyone I know who's played it, uh, either personally or on the show or regards to actual reviewers. And I think part of the reason for that is because Kickstarter is ultimately a great format for us being able to fund things that we know we like, that we know we want. It doesn't really seem to do quite as well when people are trying something new. In other words... It is my personal belief that when people funded this, they wanted Planescape Torment 2. That is not what this is. This is its own thing in many ways, and having played through uh, Planescape relatively recently, I can definitely attest to that. And thus, some people were like, hey! And some people didn't care for it, and that's fine. But you can see the problem that arises as a consequence. I will go ahead and mention I have not played the tabletop of Numenara, and I probably never will. I, I just can't see any personal reason why I would. Um, but I just wanted to mention that really quick. I mentioned the text thing. This game is almost over-reliant on text. This basically is playing a book. Now, I'm actually okay with that on its own right, but there are two problems with that. Problem number one is that this game has voice acting. Now, I know that, that sounds like a very strange thing to bring up, but the fact that voice acting is in this game at all is, in my opinion, a mistake. I am one of those people who believes that you should embrace one concept design-wise or another. Have voice acting or don't. It actually irritated me going through this game where I'd just be going through lines and going through lines, and all of a sudden one of them would just be voiced, just out of nowhere. And then the next line would not be voiced. It almost felt like, especially in some cases, it felt like people just at random decided. Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is you go, you know, the whole opening narration is, is voiced, okay? And then there's this huge chunk of non-voiced dialogue, huge chunk, as you go through the tutorialization and the character creation, all that fun stuff. And then you leave, and then there's like one line that's voiced uh, by uh, Allegarn. And then they go back to not voicing again, just... It drove me batty. I hated it. And I would rather that it was all text or all voice. One of the two. Pick it. It got to the point where I just kind of started ignoring the voice acting in general, which of course is going to lead to some pronunciation problems, but what are you going to do? <laughs> I also, uh, for anybody curious, I played a Nano. 
uh, I, I picked Observant and Silver Tongue as my focuses. And that brings me to the gameplay. I feel like the gameplay is one step away from being awesome. As is, I enjoyed it, for the record. I did enjoy the gameplay of this game. My biggest complaint was the combat. Now, now hear me out. I feel like, so the idea of combat being a crisis rather than a fight, I like that. The fact that you can do things other than kill the enemy is a good thing, especially for a game of this style. But given something else I'll be talking about next, I feel like they should have gone more into the direction of making it less combat-y and more crisis-y, if that makes any sense. Obviously, generally, I'm in favor of player choice, absolutely. But in this case, there are so few crises, and the game doesn't really feel like it generally rewards the idea of being a person who kills other people in combat. A combat-oriented build is mostly used for social interaction, so to speak, right? Rather than actually, you know, slice... And I, so I would have liked the idea better if the crises were emphasized to be more like... Like, I, I, I'm failing at describing this. I've done this myself without using any of this terminology or ideas. When, you, when you've got a D&D &D session or whatever, you know, a tabletop session, a P&P &P session, and someone's like, hey, I want to do such and such. I'm like, okay, well, things are happening very quickly right now. So we're just going to kind of slow down so you have, like, a chance to do one thing, one quick thing. You've got a couple of seconds to decide to do. What would you like to do? And the player considers and is like, okay, I'm going to try to lunge over here and grab this very quickly. I'm like, okay, well, do your skill rolls. Okay, you grab it. Now we skip to the other player, and it's like, all right, you... You have just been grabbed by Bob 1 here. What would you like to do? And Bob 2 is like, okay, well, I feel the grip in my hand, so I've got a, a second to do like a reaction, right? And I'm like, yes, you have one reaction. I'm like, okay, so what I want to do is I want to grab the ledge and like something like that. It's a completely non-combat example, but you can see how that would fit the crisis format of basically being uh, a lot of turn-based, for lack of a better term, term to put it, you know, when, when you, the player, are actually doing a lot of things in lore a very, in a very short period of time. I'm with that, and I like that concept, and I wish they leaned more in that direction with it. Which brings me to my next point. I love the way they do the stats. The might, speed, and intellect pools is an awesome combat. Making them lit or concept, excuse me, not combat, making them actual resources to spend in order to do things, that's I, I love that, especially since they're not actually necessary, and you know they mostly just boost your success chance in certain circumstances. I love the idea of being able to say, okay, I've got three win cards in my inventory, and it's very hard to replenish these, so you so you burn these whenever you really want to. It reminds me of a system I used once with several players, including uh, Javan, who some of you may have heard me talk about before. He's one of my viewers, and he's an awesome guy. Um, but I've used this system before with several players where instead of rolling a d20, the way it goes is you have a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and a 20, right? You have all of those numbers. Now, as you're playing through the game, you have this pool of 1 through 20. Now, you can blow one of those numbers at any point in time for your rolls. Here's the catch. You cannot re replenish that pool until all 20 are spent. You decide when a 1 happens you decide when a 20 happens. And it puts a lot of the agency on the player, effectively pulls RNG out of it, 
without making it uh, meaningless, without making the actual skill roll purposeless. It still is upon you, the player, to decide, okay, this is important to me. I'm going to go ahead and burn something on this one. Or, okay, I need to go ahead and accept a loss on this one. Or, I think it'd be funny if I failed at this roll, or something like that, so I'm going to go ahead and blow a two on this one. That kind of idea. That's what I was most reminded of, and that's generally the mindset I had going through this one. It's like, okay, I'm just going to accept a possible loss here. Now, that isn't quite the same because this is more something to improve your chances. And they have that system where you can only put so many points in at a given point in time with other things that improve how many points you can put in and blah, 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 blah. It was a cool idea. It was a very cool idea. I very much enjoyed it. Uh, the whole effort system. The crisis system was very close. I like the edge, too. The idea that you just always get a passive effort on one particular stat based on how you're leveling. All of this makes me think that this is an RPB and I want this to be more of an RPB. In fact, I would want more games to do this. I know what you're thinking. What the hell's an RPB? A role-playing book. Now, this is still a game. Don't mistake me. I'm not trying to say that it isn't. I've heard several detractors say it's just, it's basically just a choose-your-own-adventure. No, this is actually, in my opinion, far more engaging and far more fun, far more game than a simple choose-your-own-adventure. And let's be honest, an argument can be made that a choose-your-own-adventure is a game as well, so let's not get into that. But an RPB, a role-playing book, I love this concept. You still level up, you still have stats, you still have roles, you still have effort, you still have crises. You know, in, in every way, it is an RPG, but the focus and effort is far more on the, the role-playing side of things, right? That's why I say they should almost have removed combat from the equation entirely. Instead, make it just a series of, of events or, or contests or crises or whatever you want to call it, like the example I gave earlier. And I love that idea. I've, I've been one of the big champions of the concept that we can use uh, different types of mechanics for different types of genres like this. You know, having our role-playing uh, system affixed to other genres is something that's been done for years. But also the idea of having, you know, a game where the combat isn't, you know, the actual combat isn't just being done with uh, ATB system or full real-time system or a full turn-based system. Something else in place of that. Um, playing cards or having a puzzle game or something like that. You know, this is this feels like an outbreak of the same concept, trying to branch into a different direction. So, take, make of this what you will. This is a very good game if, in, in my opinion, you go into it with that mentality and if that's what you want out of it. My biggest regret about this game is the fact that I will not probably ever have a chance to replay it because there's a lot of things that can go a lot of different ways and it would be nice to see different paths as I go through it. Um... I just have general praise for some other concepts, you know, the skill usage for interactions and, and branching narrative, that's awesome. Uh, I love the surface thoughts ability. I, I don't, I can't even imagine playing this game without the surface thoughts ability. I really, really like the tides system. And I suppose I'll go ahead and talk about that now as my segue into talking about story. So, this is speculation, but from what I'm getting here, tides, uh, the very concept of the tides basically means that thought is reality. Now, for anybody who watches most of my stuff, you may be aware that I've brought up this topic one other time in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where no one has gone before, back in Season 1. And I mentioned how that idea was stupid. And it is. <laughs> However, I like the idea that 
uh, the presentation helps salvage it here. In TNG, it was just whatever you think that makes life. You know, thought is the basis of reality. Okay. But the episode did nothing to really explore the concept past, I'm thinking about a dog, woof woof, or a cat, actually, let's be more accurate. But by contrast, this game goes way out of its way to explore the depth and the reality of what the Tides system is, means, and does. In fact, we also get the very strong uh, showcasing of the Tidal Crisis, which I don't think they ever call it that in-game, but I just started referring to that to it as that in my notes. The Tidal Crisis, which was set off by the Dalads or the Dalads. I'm going to try with his pronunciations. I really am. There's a lot of words in here. It's like, huh? <laughs> a lot of proper names. Um... This whole crisis that was set off by them, because the the concept, at least as I understood it, is one person's tidal resonance is off. Therefore, everyone connected to that person's tidal resonance gets thrown off as well, which means everyone connected to them gets thrown off, and everyone connected to them gets thrown off, and so forth and so on. In other words, when I played this game, I had a very strong impression of playing a post-apocalypse. Now, that felt weird, because we have cities and societies and fully fleshed out worlds and a huge in-depth world that I'm not even going to touch because I can't. There's nothing. It's, it's too difficult. I'll talk about the bloom. That's all you get out of me. Um, and yet, I look at this and I think this feels like a place that is just recovering from ruin or still in the process of being ruined. And this whole title crisis thing explains why. Because reality is more or less literally shredding itself all the time. Well, because one guy was like, no... Um, <laughs> I mean, not like I don't sympathize, but uh, moving on. I also, uh, so getting back to the tides, I like the idea that there's multiple tides. Now, I have something over here on my second monitor. I was trying to think of a good way to get this to you. If I remember, I'll try to remember to edit this in, but I won't be doing that for a couple of weeks as of right now because of my schedule. So I, I don't, I'm not going to promise that's going to show up on screen. But if it is, it's going to be right over here. Uh, it's a... Uh, word. It's that thing. <laughs> table. God, I am so tired. It is a table, which is a good way to explain the tides, because the tides are not your typical morality. In fact, I, what I like about it is the the tides remind me of something I've done in my own work, so I have to admit I'm a little bit uh, pleased by the idea, because the idea is not, well, this is my intellect and this is my emotion, or this is my good and this is my bad, or this is my order and this is my chaos. Rather than dichotomizing things into simply two categories, what we have is instead five. Blue, red, indigo, gold, and silver. Now again, I'm not going to read all this thing for you here, but this table is awesome because it asks a question and then it shows what someone of that particular title mentality would answer regarding that question. So uh, just to toss out a quick example, what does one life matter? A blue would say life is an opportunity to acquire knowledge and wisdom and to pass it on to the next generation. Whereas a gold would say one life is not more important than another. Your life matters in as much as it can help others live better. You can see how neither of those are orderly, chaotically, goodly, or badly. They're simply different mentalities, and I love that concept. And I would love to see more done with that concept in the future. Uh, I said I'd talk about the Bloom. I also want to talk about Torment. I get why the name Torment is in this, and I get that you know the whole setting is tormented because of the dissonance thing. But if I might be so bold, unlike... Torment, the game that I mentally just refer to as Torment, Planescape Torment, where 
the torment of all the characters and the torment of all the people was a predominant and overwhelming theme throughout the entire work. Here I feel like torment is tacked on because we're trying to relate it to the previous game. Certainly there is torment in this game. I don't want to say like it isn't, but it doesn't feel like a big thematic connector. Rather, the tides part feels like the more thematic connector in this game. The tidal dissonance. I keep using that word. Uh, even the sorrow used that word. You know, dissonance. There's this resonance going on that is just wrong and needs to be fixed. But I digress. Moving on. The bloom, right? <clears throat> One of the things I find most weird about this setting is that it's set on Earth like a billion years in the future. Now, anybody who knows anything I've ever covered knows that I tend to complain uh, about what I call Doctor Who Syndrome, which is when writers do not understand concept of scale. Tens of thousands of years and billions of galaxies and all that kind of stuff, right? And that is a very, 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 very common problem in fiction. It's probably one of the reasons why it bothers me so much because I can't seem to get away from it. Here... The, it makes a degree of sense to set this setting so far in the future, but at the same time, it also makes me wonder why even have the connection to Earth. Because it's not Earth. Not in any way that matters. It's not real life in any way that matters. It, what I get from this is the idea that they wanted to have a setting that was weird. And I'm with that. I mean, I don't, I don't like that personally. I'm not a fan of weird personally. But if you want to have a weird setting, just have it in a weird setting. I mean, they have, they have a, a city which is inside a big, disgusting, gross creature. That's the bloom I mentioned earlier. They've got trans-dimensional concepts and deities which vary based on setting and magic and nanomachines and space and just... Why not just do that? I, I, the, the billion years gap doesn't make any sense to me. It feels like something someone tacked on because it's, it's one of the weirdest things for me. I also, so I mentioned the, the the weird aspect. It's clear they were going for weird fantasy is actually what I usually refer to it. When, when a fantasy work tries to go out of its way as hard as it can to make things that are different or unusual or weird for the sake of trying to branch out the concept of fantasy. Now, in my opinion, most settings that do that do so badly. I, I say that so hesitantly because I don't want to speak negatively of such settings. But uh, uh, Wrinkle in Time is a good example of a setting that has weird fantasy and doesn't really bother to explain it as well as it could, which is my point. One of the things I'm always really big on is self-consistency. I don't, you, know, you don't need to be realistic, but you need to establish the rules of your setting and then adhere to them. And in my opinion, too many weird fantasy settings don't. This is probably one of the only exceptions to that. It does a fairly good job of establishing its own rules and adhering to them. Even the time travel in this game is fairly self-consistent with the classic Type 2 uh, time travel, which I suppose I should explain. Uh, type 1 is any time you time traveled, you already time traveled. It's Time is a linear line is what I call that. So uh, you can't change anything because everything has already been done. Type 2 travel, type 2 time travel is there is only a singular timeline. However, it can be changed. It can be altered and, and mutated as well, which is what you can do several times in this game. I actually wrote down uh, my favorite example of that, which was Inefere. I'm probably pronouncing that incredibly wrong. And I love the idea of how, like, okay, you were a coward and didn't want to confront the sorrow. Okay, I understand that. And um, so you allowed generations of mass-murdering psychopaths to torture and mutilate hundreds, if not thousands, if not more. Um, 
So, we're going to go back in time here. We're going to use the caster and be like, okay, hey, listen, maybe you should go confront the sorrow. And then when you do, the children never existed because the cult never got to be founded because he died all that, or Inafere died all that time ago. And I like that. I like how they execute that fairly type on. In fact, there's even a great bit, forgive me for not remembering the specifics, where you can actually kill someone and then not remember why you wanted to kill them. I didn't do this. I read up on this one. So I don't know details. But the idea being that you actually do not have time traveler's exemption, except in the classic sense. So in other words, your memories are altered along with everything around you. It reminds me in some ways of uh, the Legacy of Cain series, where certain people have the ability to... Uh, well, I shouldn't say. Most people's memories are altered more or less on the fly if they ever go back and alter history. So, I also, I look at the Endless War, and I have a question for you guys. As ever, love to hear your thoughts. Do you think the Endless War was inevitable, or only happened because of the tidal crisis? Now, I've been thinking about this one for a bit. It's actually one of the points that I found most interesting in the whole work. Because the Endless War feels like... Like as it's the apocalypse. It's, I say post-apocalypse earlier, but if anything, it feels like we're still in the middle of the apocalypse throughout the course of this game. The apocalypse being the tidal crisis and the endless war. Both of those things um, shredding reality on a large scale. The endless war, my first thought when I looked at it was, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. You have thousands of people who are all cast-offs, all of whom have been abandoned, and they're like, ah, and they decide to go against each other or themselves and factionalize, and some of them care about the changing God, and some of them don't, and, right? I mean, there's a lot of variety there. It makes perfect sense that all of these people who are effectively born as soon as they are abandoned could have such different perspectives and opinions because of how different and varied people are. But then I got more into the title stuff, and more I got more into the, the dissonance problem. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that while there probably would be conflict, and there probably would be people who disagree, and there would probably be, you know, some kind of actual battle, if not war, I think the, this is my opinion, I think the only reason the endless war was propagated to such an extent was because of that resonance problem. Because people were being pushed into extreme title dissonance, because of how much each of them was contributing to the core problem, thanks to the jackass who started this all. Um, my favorite example of this is Allegorn and... <sighs> Calistig. I'm going to... Calistig? God, I don't know. <laughs> the, two, the two first characters you meet. Uh, these two characters obviously had a bit of a falling out and obviously had a bit of a breakup, but... And I don't think this is ever confirmed 100%, but I always get the very strong opinion that the only reason these two people basically hate each other and refuse to be in your party at the same time, no less, is because that title problem is pushing them into extremes that they wouldn't otherwise have. This is my mindset on this. Now, I know this is just my own personal opinion, but based on a lot of different fictional works I've consumed over the years, I feel like what we have here is something that in other fiction would be just taken at face value. Because a lot of fiction writes characters who are extremes, either because the writers don't know how to write that type of character, or don't have time to write a fully nuanced character, or don't know how to write a fully nuanced character, and therefore tend to use extreme mentality as a shortcut for characterization. Caricaturizing rather than characterizing. Make sense? Um, 
this is a very random example, but I will use uh, Tom Clancy's The Division as an example here. Hear me out. Because there are several characters in this, most notably the villains, uh, the woman in charge of the Rikers, uh, the uh, Bliss, Colonel Bliss, you know, these characters, who there's a degree of characterization there, but for the most part, they just take that and they run into an extreme with it. Now, as I said before, a lot of fiction does that for the reasons I mentioned. Here it feels this was a deliberate choice on behalf of the writers because of the title problem. The idea that this would all go away if the title crisis was resolved, which I suppose is a good enough time to talk about the sorrow. Something about the sorrow amuses me tremendously, not the least of which being the fact that uh, it might as well just be the catalyst for Mass Effect 3, except written properly. <laughs> what? The idea here being that the Dalids were like, all right, look, we've been working with the title stuff for a while. We've discovered title magic and title inference and title technology. And for some reason, we're facing what is effectively an environmental crisis. Because that's basically what this is. You know, the reality is getting wrong. People are getting wrong. Fix this. And the sorrow's like, okay. Figured it out. I need to wipe out your civilization. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly, but you get my point. I love the dilemma here. No, I really do. That's probably one of my favorite things about this game overall, is the nuance of character, of writing in general. Uh, actually, did I have the list? I have a list somewhere of all of the writers. Here we go. I've got the list of the writers involved in this. We've got, in no particular order, uh, Mont Cook, Nathan Long, George Zietz, uh, Colin McComb, Patrick Rothfuss, Mark Yohelem, uh, Mer Laferty, uh, Brian Mitsoda, and Chris Avalon. That is a hell of a roster right there with regards to uh, authors. And you can kind of tell that they divvied up writing duties to make sure that each writer had the time necessary to put the nuance into the situations, circumstances, scenarios, events, and of course characters. I'm not sure I could point to any specific character in this that felt like a caricature other than literally one-note characters you only meet once who I don't remember. Um, that's the only exception I could think of to that. And I think that writing cast there is one of the biggest reasons, which brings me to my point. The dilemma here is this title crisis is a real problem. It is overwhelmingly nightmarish, and it is causing a greater and greater cascading failure problem. My only complaint is that it's taken this frickin' long for the sorrow to really deal with the situation. Although, maybe that's just because of the changing gods. You know, cat and mouse game has been succeeding for so long. I do like the fact that the changing god died before the game even began. Although, there's a question mark on that one, and we'll get to that in a second. But the title crisis is a real problem. You, by your very existence, are part of that problem. You are innocent functionally, or at least you can be innocent. And yet it is still your fault. And that's part of the nuance I like there. Even if you are one of the nicest, kindest people ever and want genuinely to help, through no fault of your own, you are contributing to the problem. This is not mere racial or specious bias. This is the nature of your existence is altering reality, and as long as it remains so, that problem will continue. It's one of the reasons I found the final choices to be so fascinating when it comes to the ending. I mean, none of those are the good or right choice. I'm not going to tell you which ending I chose, although I'm curious which one you chose.
Um, <laughs> I did. Uh, I did pull up a YouTube to watch all the other endings just to see what happened, and the destroy the sorrow one was pretty messed up, as expected. That's not really what I'd call surprising. <sighs> Anyways, um, but I love that dilemma, and I love that they're. The core question of the work is, you know, what does one life matter? Um, uh, what's her name? Adiris flat out asks you that question, and it's brought up several times. It's the, it's the core central theme, similar to what can change the nature of a man, uh, similar to that game, which I shan't name again. You have the choice of answering that however you want, and there are plenty of answers to that, and there are plenty of valid answers to that question. What does one life matter? Because... We see how that question affects uh, the player character, the changing god, and most other individuals revolving throughout the whole thing. I mean, I mentioned, uh, how, shoot, what was his name? Inafere. I mentioned Inafere earlier, and how he decided that his one life mattered sufficiently that he was okay with the children doing their thing. I mean, when I say okay with it, I mean he accepted it. He was obviously very disgusted by the children, but you get my point. He didn't do anything about it, even though he could have. Um... What does the life of one... What, what does one life matter? What, what... Now, the changing God is probably one of the best answers to that question because he gave two answers. I must save my daughter. I must live forever. Like, they, they don't really explain how that shift happened. I like to think personally that it happened over a fairly long period of time. That he... Uh, which is probably not true, but anyways, that he, that he was like, I must save my daughter, ha I've done my experiments, her life is saved, but instead, I, oh god, the sorrow's after me, okay, quick, I gotta live so I can keep doing this, okay, now I've gotta live so I can keep doing this. The idea being that the immediacy of the dilemma that he was facing, the, the sorrow being after him, I say him, because most of them refer to the changing God as him, whatever, the immediacy of that problem was so... Uh, overt and so urgent that other concerns just faded away bit by bit. That he himself is probably an example of that extremism I mentioned earlier with the title thing, that his self-concern, that his one life mattered so much that he might have even been aware of the title crisis and not given a damn. And uh, it's actually interesting to me because... One of the things that the this game does have similar to the other game that I said I wouldn't mention again is that the ultimate, the actual real villain is someone so disgustingly horrible that I am genuinely appalled. I was happy when I found out that the Changing God has been dead for the course of the game because screw him! I, and I shouldn't even say dead. Cessated is actually a better terminology, to use my own terminology. Someone who didn't just merely die, but ceased to exist entirely. Because something like that, and I'm going to say that very specifically, something like that deserves to cease. Because the amount, of, the, the sheer monumental amount of chaos and destruction and horrible pain and suffering and torment that that one individual did for no other reason than to keep breathing is... I actually don't have a word for that. That's what really gets to me. It wasn't even about living. This is all about survival, simply continuing to be nothing more and nothing less. And we do see just how much horrible crap he does. I keep, hate, keep, hate to keep referring to Inafari, but he keeps being relevant. Um, 
the Inafari's own to- uh, mental almost entirely being caused by the fact that he had to deal with all the the consequences of opening up to new dimensions and new concepts and new ideas. And then the, the Changing God moved bodies, and now Inafari's like, oh, whereas Changing God just moves on hands clean, right? Ultimately, it reminds me of something I've talked about several times in real life as well as in fiction. It's the concept of disposable people. The Changing God felt that everyone and everything was disposable to him. That he was the one life that mattered. A truly extreme version of selfishness. And then he ceased. (laughs) If anything, I wish we could have gone back and prevented him from ever existing, but I suppose that kind of time alteration would be rather violent. Um... I do have one question for you. I referenced this earlier. Because this is something I've heard debated a few times and would love to hear your thoughts on it. Are we the changing God? Or are we another cast-off? Let me explain if you don't get it. The idea here is that the changing God either was truly cessated, in which case we are another cast-off, or the sorrow's attack wasn't completely successful and we are the changed God, or changing God, whatever, you know, the dude. We're the dude. But we have amnesia. We have lost our previous sense of self. What do you think? I admittedly prefer the former idea, but I admit the only reason I prefer that former idea is because screw him. <laughs> you know? But near as I can tell, they never definitively say, so it's kind of left up for interpretation. I mean, Lord knows the sorrow is not the most reliable source of information since it's just a automated device designed to do one thing and nothing else, which brings me to Oom. I know that's a weird segue, but I want to talk about the characters at least a little bit. I don't actually have a lot to say about most of the characters. I, I enjoyed them, but it's like, okay. I, I, I even jotted down a note about Adiris, and there's actually nothing next to her name. It's just Adiris. Like, she was cool. I like she was going with it, but... Yeah. Um, I like uh, Melmoth. Melmoth strikes me as someone who is uh, extremely practical. His whole thing, the Dendra, and, and the whole cult, basically, that he formed, and the idea of um, 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 and restoring and maintaining memory, has a lot of legitimate virtue to it. And he comes across as someone who isn't particularly evil, and isn't particularly horrible, just someone who, you know, okay, we need to keep things going. We need to maintain the balance of the past. And, I mean, this way I get to eat, too, right? Now, I find that to be a little bit disgusting and horrible. And my first thought is, surely you could find some other way to do that. But they don't because they're because they strike me as practicality, uh, that is to say, logic, without any sense of morality or ethics. What they're doing is what they consider to be correct, regardless of whether or not it is right or wrong. I also liked uh, Marallel slash Memovria, slash the first. The the speech, it's not a speech, the back and forth between her and the changing god is probably one of the single most powerful emotional moments in the entire game for me. I'm, seriously. Even though I feel like he was badly written in that scene. Um, I suppose I should explain that. He says, you are incredibly unimportant to me. You are totally unimportant to me. You are incredibly unimportant to me. In my opinion, a character who legitimately felt that way would not say so because they're unimportant to him. 
You are so beneath me. You are so inconsequential. Do you explain to a coat that you don't care about it as you shed it? You know, like if you take off a coat and hang it up, do you explain to the coat, I don't care about you, you're just a coat to me? No, of course you don't, because it's a coat. You don't care about it, right? Ignoring that one nitpick, I liked her dialogue. I, I, I am your daughter. I am here. I'm dying. Please help me to, to maintain my life. In... This is left up for debate, and again, love to hear your thoughts on this one. I think she is as bad as the changing god in her own way. That she is someone who, like him, decided that the only life that mattered was hers. Or, perhaps slightly more accurately than that, the only lives that mattered were hers and his. Her life to be continued at any cost, and his life to be ended at any cost. Again, extreme mentality. Um... I mentioned Oom. Let's just go into Oom. I feel so bad for Oom. I, I, I can't believe the game lets you be so horrifically awful to Oom. I didn't even realize that until I got to... Uh, I can't remember the specific choice, actually, but I was like, wait, you could do that? And I decided to look it up. And there was like a list of all the horrible stuff you could do to Oom. And I'm like, why? Why would anyone do that? That's so horrible. It's just, it's just a toy. It's designed to explain to kids what tides are. I was actually reminded of something that I'm not going to spoil, but I was reminded of something in Horizon Zero Dawn. Those of you who've played that game probably know what I'm referring to. But uh, Oom, Oom to me is probably the best insight into the Dalid mentality and the Dalid culture that we really get. These are a people for whom title interactions and title uh, magic, title technology, whatever you want to call it, was so normal and so commonplace that they built a machine, which itself used title energy, to in instruct their children in that. Basically a kid's toy, kind of the same way that we would explain things like electronics to someone, right? The very idea of what a switch is, or what an on or an off button is. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but my niece knew some of the basics of electronic interaction when she was three. So, <laughs> you, get, you get this parallel there. Um, I want to comment on Rin. Rin was an interesting character. In fact, Rin is probably my favorite uh, companion in this one. You really had to carry her in the first half, and she was awesome in the second half. Anybody who is more familiar with Patrick Rothfuss's work, I would love to hear if she is actually in any of his other works. The game goes so far out of its way to emphasize that sh what she is doing, th that she is actually the main character of her story. She just happens to be visiting your story temporarily. And I like that. I like that a lot. And I like the, the idea of playing someone who is going through your main story arc while intersecting with someone else going through their main story arc. It's something that very few works of fiction do properly, and I think she was wonderfully designed this way. Apparently, you can be horrifically evil to her. Uh, again, had to look that one up. But No, I took care of her, and I made sure she was good, and I kept her going with me no matter what. And we got her to her parents, and okay, we're cool, we're cool. And then she shows up at the end like, hi. I was kind of in the middle of something, but it looked like you needed some help. Let's go kick butt, and she just <laughs> destroys everything in her path. She's leveled a little bit. Um, I did like her, and I felt she was... probably the most overall nuanced character in the work. And in, uh, this could be just my own wild speculation here. But if I were to speculate, I would say that that's because, in my opinion, she's the one least impacted by the tides that this whole title thing doesn't affect whatever dimension or reality or wherever that she's from. And so when she visits, she can be more of a fleshed-out character than other people are capable of being, if that makes any sense. Um, which brings me to Eritus. 
Now, Eratus is probably the most terrifying of the uh, the joinable companions. He's... Well, I've heard many people speculate on the idea that Eratus is a... Uh, I don't know what to call it. A, basically a parody of a typical player character. That they're, that the audience, right? The audience is controlling him, and some of them want him to die, and some of them want him to go be heroic and stuff, and so he goes off and does heroically suicidal stuff, right? The idea that that's, that's the, uh, shall we say, bipolar nature of the player character. I mean, even in this game, never mind the begrillions of other games where you have player choice, think about all of the different options you have, you, the player, have, to change how your character interacts in the game. And think about, for a moment, how weird it would be if all of those were true simultaneously, right? Like, if all of those different players were all interacting simultaneously. That's the impression I got. But that's only out of character. In character, I found him even more terrifying. Because the idea here is that the audience is simply more tech, more Numenera tech, more uh, nanites that are designed to control and use. In, in one of the ending slides that I looked up, uh, Eratus uh, dies literally of exhaustion. He just, he's over. And then the nanites are like, all right, we'll hang out for the next hero to show up. And then body hop to that one. So um, what I'm trying to say here is that what the hell were those things used for back in the day? And why are they still going? Is this another example? There's a lot of examples in this of not being able to exceed your programming. The Sorrow's an example of this. Oom is an example of this. It is possible the audience is another example of this, that they cannot exceed their programming, which is to inhabit people and force them to do stuff. I find myself wondering a lot what the intention was of nanites that make you be heroic and nanites that make you be suicidal were back in the day. That's just all sorts of creepy, nightmarish territory if you start to think about it for a minute. For the record, I made sure that those were destroyed and gone, so he got to go back to being you know, a farmer and had actually a good life instead of... <sighs> Anywho. And I don't really have a lot to say about Allegern and Calistig. They were, they were a great tutorial. Like they were an, the the entire structure of the first act. I know this is getting more into gameplay stuff. The entire structure of the first act was great, in my opinion. It's world building, concept building, setting building, world building, concept building, set it building. It establishes all of the rules that you need to know in character and out in terms of gameplay and in terms of how the world works. And it establishes pretty much all the main characters right off the bat. I mean, the second character you ever meet is the Spectre, for God's sakes, and. Once that's all established, then it's like, all right, then we're going to go to the Bloom, which was next. And th then it starts actually taking these ideas and playing with them and twisting and working with them. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not something incredibly mind-blowing. It's just good. It is good escalation. It establishes and works out everything first, and therefore the whole first uh, section, everything in the city basically, serves as... A tutorial, a long, extensive tutorial, but it, it never felt like it. Aside from the very, very first parts in the mirror, it's the only part that actually felt tutorialized to me. Everything else felt naturally smooth and wonderfully designed. I just wanted to comment on that, which is where I bring up those two characters. Allegory and Achillestig both felt like, okay, here's this, and here's this concept, and here's what the changing god is. and It all felt very natural and fluid, rather than someone pausing and saying, okay, okay, hang on. <clears throat> so this, this is this concept, and... Back in 24, 34... No. Now, I think I'm done. I don't, I'm looking at my notes here really quickly. I don't think I have anything else left here. Yeah, I guess that's it. 
I, I, I would like to end this in a stupid way here, because I would like to know your answer, if you're willing to give it. You don't have to, of course, and you can give a joke answer if you'd like, but what does one life matter? I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you guys next time.